Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Today we are traversing a topic that has been debated for centuries. Does money buy happiness? This is a question that has perplexed philosophers, economists, and social scientists for decades, and the answer is far from clear-cut. On one hand, we have ample evidence that wealth can improve our material well-being and provide us with access to resources and opportunities that we may not have had otherwise. However, on the other hand, research can suggest that beyond a certain point, money does not seem to contribute significantly to our happiness or overall life situation. So the question remains, can money truly buy happiness? Or is this simply a myth that we've been sold by society and the media? Ooh, scary. I'm joined today by Declan Edwards. He's a I would say a happiness expert. He's the founder of BU Happiness College. But before we get into the chat today, we can't do this Thursday episode without Global X. So thank you to Global X for partnering with us to bring you this episode today. Understanding how the investment landscape shifts and changes over time is key to being an informed investor. And now thanks to Global X, you can dig into the data in their Australian ETFs landscape report, which showcases the Australian ETF universe. Head to globalxetfs.com.au forward slash MMM to download your copy and to be a better informed investor. Declan, do you have ETFs? I do. Oh, awesome. Do you have Global X ones? Don't answer that. I don't want to put you on the spot, but Declan, you're going to go to globalxetfs.com.au forward slash MMM, aren't you? Yes. Because you can find out all the ETFs in Australia. Declan Edwards, thanks for joining us today. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. All right. Declan Edwards, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Declan, what do you think some of the common misconceptions are that people have about happiness and how are you addressing them? I love this question. It's something I spend a lot of my time doing is busting happiness myths. Oh, uh, Let's talk about the two biggest and most common ones. Sure. So the first is that there's only one type of happiness. Mm. A lot of people think of happiness as this fleeting feeling. You know, it comes really quickly, it goes really quickly. You can't hold on to it. And so understandably, they become a little bit skeptical of the idea of working on happiness. That's a massive myth. What we know from the research is there are actual multiple types of happiness. So you have hedonic happiness, which is more pleasure and joy driven. And yeah, that comes quickly and goes quickly. That's probably more dopamine related. Sounds like lust. It's good hedonism. Mm. Well, funnily enough, it was uh, created by these Greek philosophers who were like the secret to a great life and a happy life, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Wow. Go do things that pump the pleasure up. On the other hand, there's this uh, approach to happiness called eudaimonic happiness, which is more contentment, fulfillment, meaning, purpose. It's harder to build, but it stays for longer. Mm. Both are valuable, but I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking of happiness only through that hedonic lens. And it really costs them in the long run. Rightio, hedonic and eudaimonic. That's interesting because in my opening monologue, you know, I talked about, you know, the media, society, you know, the 
photos in front of the private jets and money can buy you all this happiness. They're doubling down on that hedonic, aren't they? Correct. We are a very hedonic, happiness-focused society traditionally in in uh, consumerist societies and capitalistic societies, which has some massive strengths to it. Like, don't get me wrong, these things are all fun and nice to have. Mm. But I think a lot of people pursue that and they get to a point where they're quote-unquote successful by everyone else's definition of success, but they don't feel happy or fulfilled. There's a gap there and that normally is a eudaimonic gap. Yeah, right. So I guess the next question is, how do we double down on the eudaimonic happiness? Mm. How we double down on eudaimonic, I think also helps address the, the, the second big myth of happiness, which is that happiness is an outcome. Really, happiness is the method. Mm. So what I mean by that, a lot of people fall into something called the hedonic treadmill trap, which is and if you're listening to this, I guarantee you're on it at the moment. So fill in the blank for yourself. It's I'll be happy when. Insert whatever you want afterwards. And so they're always chasing happiness around the next corner, never quite reaching it. What we want to look at is seeing happiness, not so much as the outcome of success. So when I'm successful, I'll be happy. But what a lot of research is showing us now that when you're happy and well and looking after yourself and living a fulfilled life, you're more likely to perform well. You're actually more likely to get pay rises at work. So you're actually more likely to reach quote unquote success because of happiness rather than trying to reach happiness because of success. It's like we've had the recipe the wrong way around for a couple of hundred years. Mm. So the first thing I encourage people to do is start thinking about happiness is how do I build it right here, right now, instead of gambling it on something down the line. And if you want to look specifically at eudaimonic happiness and building that right here, right now, the biggest contributors to it a sense of purpose and meaning, good relationships and connection, and good habits of looking after ourselves. Yeah, wow. If you do those three things well, chances are your eudaimonic happiness is going to go up. Yeah. So for those people that maybe, and well, you know, I'm just throwing out some discussion points on the table, purpose, meaning, connection, relationships, and good habits of looking after yourself, is it possible to be getting an eight out of 10 in all of them all at once? Or do we sometimes drift in between them all? And secondly, and maybe my next question to you is, how can we cultivate this stuff in our daily lives? And what strategies can you recommend? Mm. So yeah, in answer to the first question, does it change? Yes. We know for a fact that people's definition and approach to happiness will change throughout their life. A really good example I like to share with people is... um. You know, we're often told this idea from society that having kids will make you happier. What a lot of the research shows, and heads up for the parents listening to this, is your hedonic happiness, that one we spoke about before, your sense of pleasure in life, actually plummets mm. when you become a parent. And it takes about 18 to 20 years to get back to roughly where it was beforehand. Never quite gets there. But your eudaimonic happiness, that sense of meaning, purpose, contribution, connection, steadily grows throughout the time you're a parent. So if you're in a chapter of your life where you have kids, your approach to happiness fundamentally needs to be a bit different compared to if you're in your early 20s, you know, sort of bachelor life. Yeah. And that's okay. And in answer to your second question of how do people cultivate it, first and foremost, start defining what happiness means to you right now in this current chapter. What mm. does a hedonically happy life look like? I don't want to rule that entirely off the table. Like what brings you joy, excitement, mm. pleasure? And what is a eudaimonically happy life right now? So what brings you contentment, meaning, fulfillment, you know, connection. And then how we start building it is don't overcomplicate it. 
literally do a little dot point list of two or three things that you go, this helps me feel more connected to others. Maybe being part of a social sporting team, having family dinners throughout the week, two or three dot points of, hey, this genuinely makes me feel a little bit better when I do it in terms of looking after myself. It might be exercise or yoga, whatever it may Mm. be. And whatever two to three things you find for each one, print out a little list and go, this is my rough happiness plan. Pop it on the fridge, pop it in your desk uh, and follow it. Mm. It's amazing how often I think people tend to know inherently what's going to help their happiness, but they don't prioritize it and they don't action it. They get caught up in the busyness of everything else in life and their happiness suffers from it. Yeah, kind of the way I see this and realistically, it's good that you've explained the eudaimonic because for me, I've always hated seeing the crap online and the Instagram posts about, I just pursue happiness. You deserve to be happy. All this stuff, like sure, it's true. But also life sucks for a lot of people, right? It's really tough for a lot of people. And the way I've kind of seen it is, if you'd like draw a, a diagram, you know, with the axis thing, mm-hmm. the eudaimonic should be a straight line slowly increasing, where for me, the hedonic happiness, yeah, is this up and down along the way. Because my problem is, and I've said this in like Facebook groups and Reddit and all that, where people are like, oh, you've just got to pursue happiness at all costs. I'm like, well, the problem is if you focus on this hedonic happiness, which is a lot like where my millennial money here, this is a money podcast, everyone like, Money buys you options, money buys you joy, money buys you all the fun stuff. But the problem is if you double down and focus your life just on this side of the ledger, when someone dies, when you get sick, when your house burns down, when your house floods, you will be totally flushed. So for me, it is has been about this bedrock of eudaimonic happiness. And it's just such an important thing we can get into this in more detail, but what inspired you to be a quote unquote happiness expert? Because you've done a bachelor in health. Yes. And you're about to complete your master's in... Positive psychology. Wow. So what brought you to this mm. and the BU Happiness College? Just tell us a bit of a, a 101. Yeah, perfect. And well, to start with, I, I do love when people call me a happiness expert, but it's something that I humbly try not to uh, to lean into too much because I think there's so much more for me to learn. Yeah. Uh, I'm still early in my journey. I like to call myself a happiness researcher. I'm fascinated mm. with what makes people happy and live yep. a thriving life. And what led me to that, I think a lot of people meet me and they go, of course you study happiness. You've always been a happy person. I'm like, well, that's actually really far from the truth. Mm. I spent a lot of my life, particularly in my high school years, on that hedonic treadmill that I was warning people about. I was chasing other people's definition of a happy life. Specifically, I was chasing... My father's, you know, I'm the first male in many generations in a direct lineage to not be in military or police force. Wow. So I went, okay, career-wise, if I want to be happy and successful, I go to the military. Uh, I need to do well, in, you know, in, in high school, get grades, get into the military, they'll pay for uni, et cetera, et cetera. And something within me was like, that's not your path. Like, you're not meant to be doing that. And when I decided not to do that, it was like, I went, well, hang on, my, my recipe for happiness and success has just been thrown out the window and I don't have a backup plan. I don't have another one. And unfortunately, that was about the time where Facebook was becoming popular. And so I jumped onto that and started seeing pictures of people who I thought looked happy, as you mentioned, with a lot of wealth or they were by the beach with six-pack abs. And I went, ah, of course I'm not happy. I'm not rich and I don't have a six-pack. If I can solve those two things, of course I'll be happy. And so I just kept chasing this idea of happiness. And unfortunately, what it led to was, or maybe fortunately, depending on how the picture played out, 
was I ended up in and out of hospital with disordered eating and, and body image issues, which weren't well researched at the time, particularly in men. And I think that was my first moment of realizing that my own personal happiness affected people more than just myself. I saw the impact that had on my partner at the time, on my mom, on family. And I went, okay, I need to learn more about how to manage my own mental health. I need to learn more about what a happy life looks like by my definition. Mm. And I realized I never learned any of that at school. I didn't learn about emotional intelligence, about self-compassion and self-worth, about confidence, about happiness. And I went, I want to learn these things. And so, you know, I, I sat down with a mentor at the time uh, who is a good friend of mine now. And it was almost like a scene from The Notebook, that scene where he goes, what do you want? What do you want? And just yells it at it. He's like, why are you here? What do you want? And I went, I want to be happy. And I know I'm not alone in that because there's been a massive uh, amount of research into if you ask people enough times what they want in life, eventually they're going to say either love or happiness. They're the two universal human desires. And I was like, okay, people want to be happy. People deserve to be happy. I want to be happy. I have no idea how to get there. I need some tools to help me. And so that led me to find out about positive psychology. I just completed my uh, degree in health and fortunately was invited into, or able to enroll into a postgraduate degree in positive psychology. So I've done the postgraduate diploma and now back doing master's thesis and just became uh, incredibly fascinated by a, a science-based practical approach to living a happier, more fulfilling life. It's fascinating. You talked about the mental health thing. Mm. I, you know, a lot of my listeners know that I'm medicated for anxiety, depression and it's changed my life. Love yep. it. My doctor always says, oh, how's it going? I'm like, I'm happy to take this to the grave. I've tried it without yeah, cool. it. Tried life without it. But for me, one of the things where I knew something was wrong mm. was all the hedonic happiness checkboxes were ticked. Mm -hmm. And I tell a story when I was standing in London, Piccadilly Circus, all these people around, people everywhere. I think it was 2015, I had the ability to travel whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted, work for myself. So I had the ability to control my own schedule. I had lots of money, so money wasn't an issue. I had a brand new house that I bought, first one to live in in my dream suburb, the suburb that I thought I would be able to buy when I retired and had the money. And for me, I remember the exact point, it was Piccadilly Circus thinking, something is not right here. I should not be sad, which that sad was actually the depression. And I, I now know the difference between sad, happy and depressed. I guess in your coaching with people and, you know, after the break, we can talk about the programs that you do. Do you get to the point where sometimes it is a clinical issue that you need people to go and get some psychology or talk therapy first? and maybe some medication, and then we can come back and actually work on, you know, you and your happiness. Yeah. So we regularly refer out and we do screening to make sure we're the right fit for what people need at sure. the time. Because I think what we need, particularly in mental health in Australia, is a really collaborative approach to this. Historically, a lot of approaches to mental health and well-being have been uh, what we'd call almost your reactive treatment-based approaches. Mm. So it's how do we move from minus 10 to neutral and get people feeling okay to get through life, which is very meaningful. It's mm. really important. And thankfully, over the last decade, awareness and uptake of that approach has been huge. The challenge with that being the only approach that people are aware of and uptake is it creates strain on the system. Mm. And that's what we're seeing now with, you know, we heard reports last year about wait times for a psychologist in Australia of four to six months. Mm. That's too late for mm. people to get support on that. 
And so what we wanted to see with things like positive psychology, which is more, well, how do we go from neutral to plus 10? And how do we put habits and practices and knowledge in place to reduce the likelihood of swinging down from neutral to minus 10? If those two work together, like we've got a lot of members at the college who are seeing us and a psychologist. Yeah. Well, they work with us and a therapist and yeah, counsellor. It's, it's funny because the eudaimonic happiness, the way I would describe it with depression, it actually moves your baseline from zero to, as you said, minus 10. So the mental health medication and talk therapy and, you know, you don't want to hopefully be with a psychologist forever. And sometimes there are cases where you need to be. But for me, it wasn't. It was a period of talk therapy, also some medication, get me back to a base camp. So now my eudaimonic happiness can be built on a solid ground, basically. Yeah, and it's interesting to use that term like a baseline because that's literally what the research says. Right. These numbers are rough, but what we think from the research over the last you know, 40, 50 years is how happy people rate themselves in their life as is about 50% determined genetically. Mm. So they give a sort of set baseline or set range that people will normally return to. Um, and that's where we see things like, you know, uh, anxiety, depression have an impact, right? It affects that baseline and why things like um, pharmaceutical support are really beneficial for impacting that. My worry is that if people only use that as their approach, they're missing 50%. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean. Like if I didn't work on all the other stuff in my life, I can be medicated and not depressed, but still be living in hell. Yeah. You'll get by, you'll, mm. you know, be it neutral, but probably not thriving. Yeah. And I think that people often ask me like, well, <laughs> which one do I do? And I'm like, honestly, both. Like yeah. it's not an either or, it's a both end. Yeah. Because that other 50% of how happy you rate yourself, 40% is your own internal skills. So learning things like emotional intelligence, self-compassion, mm. you know, changing our psychology and, and what we're doing day to day, our actual intentional behaviors. And 10% is your environment. So we know environment has an impact too. Here's a question. Does money buy happiness? <laughs> okay, let me give everyone listening a nice little audio snippet to remember. The evidence on whether money buys happiness is very complex and we'll unpack it, we'll mm. look at it. But the evidence on whether happiness buys money is very clear. Right. So I'll start with that one because it's shorter and easier. This is what I mentioned before where we're seeing more and more that happiness is not the outcome, it is the method. So when people look after themselves, when they're doing well mentally, physically, emotionally, when they're happy and fulfilled, they are more likely to perform well in an environment that rewards performance and therefore more likely to make more of an income. They're also more likely to make better financial decisions. I'm sure we've all had a moment where we've been feeling very stressed and not managing it well. So we go to the Amazon shopping cart mm. to try to get some of that hedonic happiness. Amen. Right? So we know that people perform better with money when they're happy and well. So whether money buys happiness, we'll talk about more, but I can tell you conclusively that happiness buys money. A lot of your studies in psychology, and I guess, you know, psychology 101, hey, kids, welcome to the class. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So for me, when I've talked about coaching people with money and their budgets, right, I often use Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a bit of a baseline. And I've kind of redone that, you know, and all those who have done the Glenn James Spending Plan have watched the videos. In our life, if you're struggling to pay for rent, pay for food, pay for fuel, pay for clothes, pay for utilities, you're not online searching for a silent yoga retreat in India. Like you are just not there. So what I kind of teach people to do is with their finances, 
strip back everything, you know, you can't be paying for luxuries when you can't afford the electricity bill. It's that cart for the horse thing. But as we earn more money and those baseline things are taken care of, then we can start to look at holidays. Then we can start to look at retreats. And this is a very like developed economy, developed world type problem to have, right? Because I've been to Surabaya in Indonesia. I was on a trip once, two hours out of Surabaya, small village. I wish I had the happiness that they had. So it's not all about the money because there are people that live in the world that are happy below what we would say is the poverty line here in Australia and their equivalent poverty line. So all that to say, do you want to say something? (laughs) I'm just kind of throwing all all of my thoughts on the table and if you want to pick up anything and talk about the money and maybe unpack some of does the money buy happiness where we know if you're happy and you're functioning well, you'll have a high chance of generating higher income. Yeah, well, let's answer that question, does money buy happiness? Because it is a little complex. Mm. I love that you teach people that idea of Maslow's hierarchy of realistically focusing on happiness. And the way this was a a thing that hit me in the face, I was in Africa a few years ago and I was Mm. trying to explain to our guide what I did for a living. And he chuckled and said... Sounds like a very developed world problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> we're not worried about happiness. We're worried about survival. Yes. And around the same time, one of my um, mentors and lecturers said a line that will always stay with me because I used to be very much in the camp of money doesn't buy happiness. Looks nice on T-shirts. Everyone puts it everywhere. It's a very common saying. And one of my lecturers said to me, saying that money doesn't buy happiness is such a privileged position because the people who are saying that, I can guarantee are not worried about a roof over their head. They're not worried about food on the table. Absolutely. So let's start first and foremost. Money will buy happiness. Literally, the more money you make, the happier you'll rate your life as until your survival needs are taken care of. Mm. Where we go wrong a lot of the time in countries like Australia, UK and US is we mistakenly think that our survival needs are much bigger than they actually are. And that's what I was talking about, that you know, 15 streaming accounts, when you can't pay your electricity bill, that's not healthy financially. And I would say as well in the West, it is probably exacerbated because people that are in that, I'll call it first tier, struggling to make ends meet are often laid up with consumer debt and payday loans. So they're behind the eight ball that is sitting behind an eight ball. Mm -hmm. And that's why if if you're listening to this and you're under 25, you're under 20, you are just starting your career... I don't care if you get through uni, you get through your training, you get through your apprenticeship, you get into your mid to late 20s and you have nothing to your name but no consumer debt, you are ahead of everyone. Yeah, and that's exactly what I would argue in terms of setting a, where is the baseline for where happiness or money will no longer buy more happiness? I would say if you are making in Australia about... 70 to 90,000 Australian a year as an individual or about 125 to 140 as a, as a household if you've got dependents as well and you have no consumer debt, you're not really going to get a huge return on making more money for happiness unless you invest that money into one of three areas. So there's only three areas we've found in all the research over the years that will give you a return of happiness for your dollar. Global X ETF, first one. <laughs> Getting the Glenn James spending plan, spending plan, and buying the book. Sort your career out. Exactly. There's the three. There's the three. That's all of them. (laughs) 
No, but if, if we look at the three, and I'll share it with people because I think yeah. people should learn this. Once you have your financial survival needs set and your basics covered, as mentioned, you know, and you're no out, debt. Out of consumer debt, yep. right? You're making about 70 to 90 grand a year. You are much better instead of looking at how do I make more, start thinking about how do I invest this more strategically. Sure. And your three areas to invest in strategically, anything to do with your own self-growth, learning and health, we yep. know has a return on happiness. Yep. So building yourself as a person, um, anything to do with memories and experiences. And the thing I love about that is you get to decide what's a meaningful memory and experience for you. Well, and I've said this and, you know, money people have said this by experiences, not things. Yes. Yep. Right. And so for my wife and I, live music and travel are the memories and experiences that matter most to us. So we prioritize that. Mm. I've got friends where fine dining is their memory and experience. Mm. They love it. Mine's sitting in the driveway. Gorgeous. Mm. Nice and cheap, accessible. Mm. Private quiet moment. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Sorry. No, no, no. Oh, you meant the, bo- the, the boat. <laughs> I thought you meant literally just, I, I pull up at home, I stop the car and I just sit in silence well, for a few minutes. I know, I know if you're listening and you've got kids, you probably do that before you walk inside yes. to press reset and have your moment. That's a good happiness moment yep. for a lot of people. Yep. Yeah, uh, no, so the boat, that's the perfect one. Memories yep. and experiences. Yep. And right? the third thing? Third one is altruism. Oh. Giving back, contribution feeling like you're uplifting and supporting others. Mm. If you do those three things, and the funny part is, right, a lot of the time it flies in the face of traditional financial investment advice. Like I don't think many people would say buying a boat is a good financial move. Oh, it's terrible. But if it matters to you, memories and experience-wise, you go, okay, well, I'm investing the money not expecting a financial return. I'm investing the money expecting a happiness return. But I, I will probably carve out, like if we look at that memories and experiences, it's almost like... My financial plan and a lot of things that I teach, for those who have listened for a million years, I just do three things. Give some, save some, and spend some. And I do it in that order. So I give some away, I save some because I need to look after future Glenn, and I spend some. And part of that spending category is whether it's a single origin coffee here that I'm drinking, a boat purchase or whatever. But this point two of memorable experiences, it can't be at the detriment of future you because you're consuming all your money. Yes. However, bushwalking could be a memorable experience and a thing that you enjoy that recharges you. Walking on the beach, looking for seashells. So yeah, I I think that's great. So number one, your own self-growth. Number two, memories, experiences and not things. And three, giving and generosity. Mm. And I think on all three of them, the important thing is you define what goes in those boxes. Mm. Don't fall into the trap of social comparison. And I will say like people might be thinking and listening, this is a money podcast. Why aren't you just telling us how to make money? You've, you're telling us here to you know, invest in ourselves and grow. You're telling us to buy experiences, not things. You're telling us to give your money away. You freaks. Trust me, I've focused on trying to do these three things. Once I've got to that baseline, yes, you double down on these three things, I can guarantee the money will come. It really will. If it's money you're after, if you're content, do you reckon contentment is more of that eudaimonic? Eudaimonic, yeah, eudemonic, correct. Yeah. yeah, contentment and fulfillment really fit nicely into mm. eudaimonic. It's that real steady state happiness where you just feel in your gut things are okay. Mm. So what are some of the common habits or practices that happy people tend to have? And how can, you know, the garden variety people like myself and our listeners adopt these habits into their daily lives? Perfect. Let's talk the 
the most recommended ones across the board. Mm. Because obviously happiness is individual. We've spoken a lot about that today. That's part of the purpose of defining happiness for yourself and building your own happiness plan, which we obviously help people with. But if you want to go, what are the foundations that I believe everyone should do? If I was to click my fingers and say, everyone does this. Mm. One, focus on meaningful relationships. Yeah. We are currently the most connected we've ever been as a species and the most lonely at the same time. I'll say that again. We're the most connected we've ever been as a species. Like you can reach out to anyone so quickly online, but we are reporting the highest levels of loneliness we've ever seen in our society. Mm. That is so unhealthy. And so focusing on cultivating meaningful relationships, not a lot. You don't need a lot of followers online. Just have some deep, meaningful friendships and connections with loved ones. We know currently the longest running study on health and happiness, that is the biggest contributor to a happy life. On that connectedness, Mm. I've got my friends and I think there's eight of us in an iMessage group chat. And I think everyone in that group chat, we've known each other for 20 years. Mm. And it's almost a daily group chat. Whether And it's funny, if you're in the group chat and like, so my friend Dirty Mike's in there, if I'm going to catch up with Dirty Mike, it's like, hey, Dirty Mike, do you want to come around and set up your thing or whatever? It's just set in the group chat. So all the individuals like, and uh, Tim's getting his house built by Maddie at the moment and his business and they'll talk about stuff in there. So like, and my friend Nick in America, he woke up the other day to 300 unread messages. And that's just part of the deal. If you want to be in there, you got to put up with just all the conversation. But I've talked with another friend in that group and that group and our mateship is worth $100 a week therapy, $300 a week therapy session. Mm. It's just amazing. Mm. Yeah, we send memes and jokes and pick on each other and all that. But there's been times where um, if there's been a loss in a family or something like that or that's serious, we've shared that and everyone's like, yeah, we're thinking of you, mate. Like, So I can't agree with you more. And that's not I've got a good relationship with my brothers or sisters or family it's whatever your connectiveness is to other humans correct yeah so that's i mean that's a case study on why this is so important Mm. right so that would be definitely the first one yep and then the second one if i was to snap my fingers everyone would do it it would be develop a regular and consistent gratitude practice i've never done that really cool let's talk about probably why because a lot of people are the same i was the same for many years i was very skeptical of it I resisted it stubbornly because we tend to think of it as almost like a tick box chore. Mm. You know, it's all over Instagram. Come home and write down things you're grateful for. But if you're treating it like a thing you have to do that feels like an obligation, you don't actually get the happiness benefit out of it. Mm. And so that's what I was doing for a long time. Like I was doing the surface level of it. Yeah. Because I, okay, I probably, I do it in one way. Oh, do tell. And it's not like, it's not a, like a, it's just something I always think about. Mm regardless of how much money I got, whether the cash flow is good in the business or not, whether I'm, you know, struggling this month or not or whatever. It was my old house, this current house, the fact that I have clean running water eight steps from my bed in my ensuite just always blows my mind. Yep. Whether people are going to bed tonight without a shelter, mm. without running water, mm. without clean water. So it, it has been present but I've never done a formal daily dear diary. <laughs> it's your boy, Glenny J. What up? Like I've never done that. Here's what I'm happy about. Yeah. Today. Like, would you, 
Because people do it. I would yeah. run out of things to be happy for. Yeah. <laughs> Dear so diary, as for yesterday, KC, bye. Please see last page. Yeah. Uh, look, I think there's three different types of gratitude practice and they're all beneficial. Mm. Uh, the first one is literally what you've been doing, which is called perspective uh, gratitude, right. which is every so often stopping to zoom out and see the bigger picture. Yeah. And the bigger picture is often, hey, like if you're listening to this, chances are by global standard, you're in a pretty damn good position. Mm. And we forget that sometimes, Yeah. right? So that's a really important one. The second one's called savoring, which is just in the moment when something good is going on, be present with it, really take it in, yeah. really simmer in it. Mm. I think oftentimes we gloss over good moments in the day and we hyper-focus on bad moments or challenging moments. Mm. And then the third one is, yes, your formalized gratitude practice. Now, the best way to do it, if you want gold standard, is you do either write down or I personally do something called Otter. It's a voice, it's an app, it's free. You speak into it like a voice journal and it'll journal it for you because I don't like writing. And I find that talking out my thoughts is better for me and talking out my emotions. So you can do that or you can write, but write down three things you'll go for that day and why. Now mm. the kicker is the why, because the why is what actually stimulates the feeling of gratitude. Mm. If you're just writing, I was grateful for my breakfast, like whoop de doo who cares, mm. right? But if you go, I was grateful for my breakfast because I took a moment away from my computer and away from work. I didn't start my day straight away. And I just had a silent moment out on the balcony for me sitting in the sunshine. Like already you start to feel the benefit of that. And if you are someone like myself who looks at a blank piece of paper and your prompt is write three things you're grateful for and your brain panics and goes, everything today was terrible. I can't think of a single thing. Start with prompts. So personally, I use uh, a prompt. What is a small moment I can be grateful for today that I'd normally overlook? It mm. encourages you to find the little moments of joy. Second one is who is someone I'm grateful for today and why, which helps with that connection piece and that relationships we spoke about before. Mm. And the third is normally the most challenging, but the most beneficial, which is what's something about myself I'm grateful for today mm. and why. Those three I've been running for a few years now. And I'd be lying to you and to all the listeners if I said I do it daily. It's probably mm. three or four days a week yep. on average. Um, but those three prompts have seen me through a lot of challenging times. Mm. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, we're back. Now, what we're going to do, we're going to read some comments. I put it in the Facebook group. I wrote the question, are you happy right now in your life? If yes, why? 
If no, what do you think it will take to be happy? And we're going to read some responses. But firstly, like just I've written heaps of notes here and it's more for my own benefit. You're a happiness researcher. Yes. You live and breathe this crap all day. And it's not crap, but you know. <laughs> Very you, much so. You get what I say, right? Yes. Life happens to people. Yes. What happens if someone you love dies tomorrow? Mm. Because that's kind of loss can be the biggest thing. And I know people who have lost loved ones and they've grieved for years, mm. never got out of this grief cycle. I'm not going to comment whether it's healthy or not. Mm. I, it's just a comment I've noticed that they've never recovered. And I guess some humans, we're all wide different. Mm. Some people will never recover. Others will be like, all right, well, what's up? I'm done. Like, I don't know if you just want to mention the grief component. Yeah. And if you've seen any research on that or mm. because life's going good and then mm. all of a sudden there's like instant loss mm. and tragedy. So any comments on that? Yeah, I'll answer in two forms. I'll do the, the researcher answer and then my personal answer. Sure. So the researcher answer and the academic and what the research is saying is we go back to that sense of eudaimonic happiness. So particularly good relationships, meaning and purpose, contentment, fulfillment, good habits. They act as almost a little buoyancy system when life throws us really shitty circumstances. So you're saying the those circumstances will strip any hedonic happiness in an instant. Very quickly. Yep. Yep. So, and don't get me wrong, your eudaimonic will probably drop for a little bit too sure. in a moment of grief and trauma and challenge, yep. but it will bounce back up quicker. Now, the research behind all this fantastic book recommendation for everyone, Man's Search for Meaning mm. by Viktor Frankl. We'll put a link in the show notes to that. Brilliant. Thank yep. you. So he was a- you can thank Rach. Brilliant. Thank you, Rach. Uh, he was a psychotherapist who was studying meaning, purpose, and, and how that helped people in life and was taken as a prisoner of war at Auschwitz. Terrible, terrible life circumstance. Had all his work stripped away from him, lost loved ones, lost family, like went through things that human human beings should never have to endure. Mm. His life's work from that once he came out was realizing how much this sense of meaning and purpose and feeling part of something bigger than himself helped him recover from that. So the answer to your question from an academic perspective is, if you go through a period of loss or grief or big challenges or life throwing a terrible circumstantial way, the longer you have built up a stable reserve of eudaimonic happiness, the better you will be able to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. The personal answer, which to complement that, because if you asked me, hey, what happens if a loved one of mine passes away? And you don't have to answer this, by the way. I'm happy to, because okay. uh, I think we need to talk about this more. Yeah, My answer's changed over the last couple of years because in 2018, I went away with my wife and some family and friends and, and clients as well to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa. And had terrible altitude sickness to the point where I was pretty convinced I was going to die at the top of that mountain. I was lying down. I was like, I'm done. Like, I'm happy to not continue. The guide was saying, if you lie down here, you will die. And I'm like, I don't care anymore, which is not me. That was altitude sickness. It really Mm. affected me. And I had to come to terms afterwards without my relationship personally with mortality. Mm. And so I did some research into it and learned from some great researchers in Australia who study happiness and mortality. And I think the way we as a Western world have tried to avoid the topic of our own mortality and our loved one's mortality is really detrimental to our mental health and really detrimental to our ability to withstand the inevitable thing that's going to happen, which is we will lose loved ones. Mm. The West doesn't handle death well. We don't. No. We tuck it away. We don't talk about it. We Even our whole funeral practices are separate from everyone. You look at some other Eastern cultures and the way they uh, acknowledge, accept, and sometimes even celebrate 
death as part of life. So Day of the Dead in, in Mexico, mm. for example. And what we find is those cultures tend to go through the grieving process in much healthier ways. It's not as isolating and lonely. It's more connected. Mm. It's healthier in, in the grand scheme of things. And I think we need to start having, which is why I was happy to answer this when you asked me, mm. we need to start having more conversations in Australia about our own mortality with ourselves and with our loved ones. It's uncomfortable as all hell. It's scary as all hell. And by the way, I'll put a caveat on this. Do this if you are feeling in a good, healthy, stable position mentally and emotionally. I sure. wouldn't say contemplate your own death if you're already going through a tough time. Yeah. Right. So make sure you're in a good place and you've got good support networks, whether that be professionals or, or personal. But if you do have that, start questioning and start sitting with your relationship with mortality. Someone asked me the other day, they're like, if you were told you had a year to live, what would you do? My first thing was I'll sell all my properties and I'm cleaning up my estate so it's easy to manage. <laughs> I just went straight to the practical. It's really what I care for the people after yeah, me. Right. I don't want them to have to deal with I mean, it all. Gosh, I want to make life easy for my um, executor. Yeah. yeah, right. So it's it's fascinating. Even in the States, I went to a funeral there. A friend died and it was just interesting in the States we did the service with everyone and then the small group of family and friends went to the graveyard and we went there and away from the hole where he was buried, they had a little tent and they had the casket there and there was another little service. And then after that, they're like, all right, that's done. We'll take him from here. And we're like, no, no, we want to watch him going to the ground. So even in, you know, whether it was particularly the US or that particular funeral provider, they weren't used to, you know, 15 people going over and watching the casket be lowered. Mm. Mm. Like it was just a weird thing. So they like got the crane out and because it was in the snowy Midwest, they put the casket in a, a big chamber mm. and lowered it. So the subsidence, you know, with the wet ground in low. And it was weird. It was like the, the people lowering the thing weren't used to 20 people standing around. <laughs> like, yeah, it was just, yeah, fascinating. So we need to lean into this grief. 100%. We need to lean into it. And it's that resilience, isn't it? And normalize it. Because what's the saying? The only thing guaranteed in life is death and taxes. Mm. Like, well, yeah. depending on who you ask about taxes, I'm yeah. sure there's some dodgy practices out there, but you ain't avoided death. Yeah. It's funny. I just chuckled to myself when I realized uh, people are coming into this being like, okay, let's learn about the relationship between happiness and money. And maybe their three takeaways are going to be build better relationships, practice gratitude and look after yourself and contemplate your own death. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, death is part of life. Yeah. It really is. And I said at my grandfather's funeral once, you know, we're only here because he lived. Mm. Like it's literally part of life. Mm -hmm. All right. So we asked people in the Facey group, are you happy right now in your life? If yes, why? If no, what do you think it will take to be happy? And I just asked for some other comments. There's a comment here from Clara. It fluctuates. As I'm in treatment for advanced ovarian cancer, I'm so happy to be alive that the treatment is currently effective that I have love and support from so many people and a hell of a lot of accrued sick leave and good health insurance, so there was minimal financial stress. I'm not out of the woods. I still have pain and my future may not extend to even the early retirement I envisaged. It's a full cup, just sometimes it's full of the good stuff and other times it's full of air. Any comments on that? Yeah, and I, mean, I mean, well wishes to Clara. We hope you can get through this and uh, mm -hmm. thanks for being so open and transparent as you are going through the battle of a lifetime. Mm. And I think on that battle of a lifetime, I want to acknowledge and celebrate Clara 
what you're doing at the moment is such a great personal showcase of some of the concept we've spoken about in this discussion. You know, I can look at your message and straight away see that you're doing that perspective gratitude. Uh, I can see that you've got great support networks and connections and relationships, which we spoke about being such an important part of resilience and eudaimonic happiness. Mm. Uh, And I I think what's valuable for people to recognize is that happiness is not always the absence of suffering. They can coexist. We tend to think of them as opposites on a spectrum. Mm. You're either suffering or you're happy. And that's not true. They're two different spectrums. So you can have big challenges going on, as in this case, um, Clara, but still be able to cultivate happiness throughout it. And I think what you've shared, at least from this, this brief comment I've got, is a really beautiful example of that. Mm, yeah. Michaela said, I'm happy because I actively pursue peace, not happiness. Happiness is a great byproduct of that about 65% of the time because life is hard and we can't always be happy. I am more honest with myself than ever before and only spend my time and energy on people and projects outside of work that light me up. Michaela is my person. Sounds like she's a pragmatist <laughs> like me. Yeah, well, let's start with what I love in this comment, which is uh, I'm more honest with myself than ever before. So, Michaela, I, I imagine by the sound of it, you've done a bit of work on self-awareness and emotional awareness and being able to reflect and look inward and make those decisions to only spend time and energy on things that light you up. And that's a really intentional choice that people can make to be happier. So hats off to you for that. The part that I'll challenge, which I'll loop back to what we've spoken about a lot in this concept, uh, in this uh, conversation, is I'm happy because I actively pursue peace, not happiness. Uh, we can't be happy all the time. I would agree if you are only using the hedonic definition of happiness. Mm. But if we look at contentment, you know, as part of eudaimonic happiness, that's peace. I would say, Michaela, you are actually pursuing happiness. You're just pursuing a type that you, a lot of people don't realize exists. Mm. So you've been pursuing eudaimonic happiness rather than hedonic happiness. Which is always a good default to pursue. I Look, personally, mm. I hesitate to give a single answer recipe for 8 billion people on the planet, but personally, I believe you spend 80% of your efforts on happiness building focused on eudaimonic happiness and 20% topping it up yep. with some joyous, exciting stuff. Yep. You're going to have a pretty good life. It's funny, there's been a couple of things in here. Um, my default coping mechanism for when stuff goes bad would be seen as toxic positivity to others. <laughs> and I've been accused of toxic positivity when I've read something and said, oh, well, it could be worse, it could this. And I have also learned that, and I'll use an example, I'm standing out the front of my house, house is burned down. Oh, it could be worse, might not be insured and you might not have ever had a house. Like, well, that doesn't take away that I'm still sad and really traumatized from this situation. So I think it's um, can be a bit of a two-edged sword and it's probably got to do with the intent. If you do say it to someone, it could be worse. Yeah. And also if the intent is to avoid or invalidate the reality of uh, that moment experience for ourselves or others. So if yes. the intent is I'm looking for the silver lining to avoid feeling hurt, heartbreak, grief, sadness, frustration, whatever it may be, there's this saying in positive psychology, what we resist will persist. Mm. And so the more we resist those feelings and try and avoid them avidly, the more they're going to bite us in the butt later. Mm. And that's where toxic positivity becomes really detrimental for people. What we need to get better at as a society is being able to sit with challenging emotions like anxiety, fear, sadness, grief, whatever it may be, and still see the silver lining. So we don't say, hey, the clouds don't exist. 
we go, okay, this is a tough time, but there is still a silver lining in this tough time. Mm. Lindsay said, happiness is something I need to work on. I have life pretty good compared to where I started, but I still feel annoyed and bitter towards others that achieve what took me 20 years plus in only a blink of an eye because they get given $100,000 for a house deposit or literally given a house. Then feel kind of angry, jealous or envious of having a mate that spent $4.5 million on a house then to knock it down to rebuild another after buying a Porsche. Their starting level of wealth is something I could never achieve in a hundred lifetimes. Seeing people have children so easily, whether they wanted them or not, yet it took us years of trying and then years of IVF dealing with the depressive state that feel that failing to conceive whilst trying to achieve your other goals is simply exhausting. But then I realize it's just money and I can't take it with me and I calm down and it's all just in my head and life ain't bad. Bit of a struggle sometimes, but it's all pretty good. Just got to stop reacting negatively to people who had a better start, which isn't their fault, of course. Figure it out eventually. Haha. <laughs> so yeah, big circle of emotion there. Yes. <laughs> we have a tool at the college we recommend called the feelings wheel, which shows you all the feelings that people can experience. And Ugh, yeah, sounds, I think, sounds terrible. I think we just read through it, which is, yeah. um, which I want to acknowledge. Like, thank you, Lindsay, for the uh, emotional honesty and awareness on that. Yeah. Look, the thing I would say here, and it's a pretty common thing. I think Lindsay sounds to be a bit self-aware that he's doing it is it is so easy for us as a species to compare mm. ourselves to others. And it's becoming increasingly easier thanks to social media. You know, you've heard the sayings about don't compare your life to someone else's highlight reel, et cetera, et cetera. And we can know that logically, but it still impacts us emotionally. Unfortunately, when people do comparison psychologically, we tend to, and I don't really like this term, but it's what used in the research, so we'll use it. We tend to compare up. So we look at what we think people are doing better than us mm. and it makes us feel bad or not as good as. But if you zoomed out even further, hell, let's play the comparison game. Let's zoom out. If you make over 20,000 Australian dollars a year and you live in Australia, you are in the wealthiest 1% of people globally. Mm. So if we're going to compare, why don't we compare to the bigger picture, right? But we don't do that as a species. Mm. So the antidote to comparison is thankfully- More stuff. More stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The antidote is just buy the Porsche and the four and a half million dollar house, of course. Why wouldn't you? I know the antidote to comparison is exactly what I mentioned before is a core principle of happiness- which is gratitude. Practicing gratitude for what you have and where you're at and doing that more consciously and effectively is a great way to combat that natural human desire and instinct to compare ourselves. And on that note, I will mention a lot of the time comparison is so baked into the advice we give for how people become successful. Look for mentors and learn from them. That's a form of comparison. Now it's healthy, but it can be detrimental. Mm. Another one which I hear a lot in financial advice is It is sound financial advice to buy the worst house in the best neighborhood and move in there. But a massive study on that found that people then became less happy because they're making 80 grand a year, but all their neighbors are on 120 grand a year. So they compare to their neighbors and Mm. go, geez, I'm falling behind. The secret to happiness, maybe not for economic success in buying a house, but buy a house in a neighborhood with people at roughly the same income level as you. Well, that was in the book, The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah. And actually a couple of weeks ago, guys, if you want to have a listen on the My Millennial Investor podcast, myself, Nick and the host, we did a bit of a recap on that book. Awesome. And one of the points was like millionaires, they won't move into a premium suburb. They'll move into a garden variety suburb and live well within their means. Yep. 
Yeah. Highly recommend it. If, if you want to be happier, that's a really good move. Uh, of course, if you just want to look at accruing wealth, then maybe go down the other path, but know that you're doing it at the expense of your happiness. Totally. Yeah. Katie, we'll finish on this one. Katie said, yes, very happy. I'm just content with life and what I have and what I'm moving towards. I feel like happiness is not only about what you have at the time, but the hope you have for the future as well. It's interesting that, you know, with depression, one of the main things is I'm hopeless. I've got no hope for the future. I can't see beyond right now. And that's why if you are struggling with what you think could be depression, you might have the signs of hedonic happiness being like that security, the family, your basic needs met, and you still aren't hopeful. You are hopeless for the future. Maybe it is something that you should speak to your GP about, but just talk to us about hope. Yeah, I love this. And, and Katie's actually after my own heart with this comment. Uh, for those who listened to my episode on the My Millennial Career podcast recently with mm. Shell, Shell threw me the question, what's my personal definition of happiness? Because the whole conversation, I said, define it for yourself. Here's some frameworks. Here's some evidence, but you need to make your own one. She goes, well, what's yours? And it's something I've thought about for many years. And what I've settled on is happiness for me is when I am deeply content and fulfilled with who I am right now in this current chapter of my life. And... I have something that I'm moving towards that matters to me. Mm. If I'm only focused on what I'm moving towards, I get stuck on the hedonic treadmill. I'll be happy when. But if I'm only focused on being really content right now, I might as well just go be a monk and live in the mountains somewhere. Like there's nothing to move towards and to strive towards and and growth is an essential human need. Mm. And so Katie's hit that on the head. I'm content with life, with what I have like right now. And I have things that I'm moving towards that matter to me and I'm hopeful for them. Mm. Beautiful. Now on, on the topic of hope... Hope is one of the most protective uh, emotions for depression because Mm. of the reasons you mentioned. Uh, A sense of hopelessness about the future is such a core part of chronic depression. And so the more we can cultivate a sense of hope for the future, whether that be just having small things that spark joy that we're moving towards. And by the way, the future doesn't have to mean five years from now. It can mean next week. Mm. Start small and build up. Yeah. But if you have things that matter to you, this is what I said before, find the things that relate to your happiness on what we've spoken about today in this conversation. Find two or three things for each one that help you build them, two or three things that help you build good habits, two or three things that help you form good relationships. Write them down and start planning them into your calendar. And if you have little things to look forward to, your spark of hope is hopefully going to be nourished and grow. Yeah, that's awesome. I wrote one comment down when we were talking previously, Mm. anything to do with forgiveness, (laughs) because I was actually going to sleep last night. Mm. I was thinking about my life and, you know, just doing an autopsy on some things and there was a person and I made a decision in my heart to forgive them. Yeah. And feels all right at the moment, but Mm. it was just that thing. It's like, well, maybe I need to just let go, forgive. What's your comments or anything that has come up? with a correlation between happiness, either hedonic or eudaimonic and forgiveness. Yeah. Well, there's a, a common saying uh, out there of uh, resentment and anger is like drinking a cup of poison ourselves and expecting the other person to die. Mm. It affects us more than it affects the other person. And I would argue that forgiveness is the same. Mm. Sometimes people go, I don't want to forgive someone who's trespassed against me or done something wrong because it impacts me. And that's fair and true, but you're not forgiving them for their sake. It's actually not about them. Mm. It's irrelevant. 
it's forgiveness for your own sake. And I would argue that even more beneficial than the concept of forgiveness, because sometimes forgiveness seems like a big stretch for people to reach. It's quite far down the line in the emotional journey. Mm. But a really nice middle point to get to is a state of acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean you agree with anything that happened, doesn't mean you condone it. It doesn't mean you support it. It just means you go, this happened. Mm. It is what it is. It, I can't change it. It's there. And I think sometimes we need that acceptance and forgiveness journey, not only with others, but with our past selves. Mm. with younger versions of us who were doing the best they could with what they had, just trying to figure their way out. I look back on some of the decisions I made, you know, when I was younger. Would I make them differently now? Probably. Did I make them with the best intentions at the time? Yeah. And so that's part of forming a better relationship with ourselves and with others is practicing acceptance and practicing forgiveness. And as another book recommendation, if you want to work on acceptance as a skill, The Happiness Trap by Dr. Russ Harris is a fantastic book and he's an Australian researcher as well. So we'll put that link in the description and show notes. Before we finish, what we're going to do, just give us a rundown of the BU Happiness College. And we'll also put a link in the show notes if anyone wants to learn more about you or is there a course or something that people can engage with if they do have the building blocks in place, like they know that it's not a a clinical depression, they think things are in order and they just need a bit of a reset. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, so BU Happiness College, uh, we're a social enterprise. So we started uh, in 2016, 2017 roughly with this vision of growing global happiness. And I remember at the time going, well, how do you grow the happiness of an entire planet? And the first pillar was we help individuals learn how to manage their mind and emotions more effectively. That's the journey I'd been on. It's the one that I was like talking to people about the things I'd been learning and go, hey, did you learn this at school? They're like, mm. no, I didn't learn anything about this at school. Did you learn this at work? No, I haven't learned it at work. There's all this great research and tools out there for managing your mind and emotions better rather than wrestling with them. But people just don't have access to them. Mm. And so we went, hey, let's bring this to the people. Let's make much like going to a college, but instead of going to a college to learn to be a great employee, you're going to a college to learn how to be a happy human. And so it's available online. You get paired with a personal happiness coach, which works with you to keep you accountable and and take you through the curriculum and make sure it's tailored to you. Uh, We've now got members and graduates in five countries from that. And been very grateful to win awards for it as uh, like Social Enterprise of the Year in 2020 and the United Nations uh, Global Goals Champion in 2021, uh, which was incredible. And then the second pillar was we need to grow the happiness of organizations. So we've started doing workplace happiness consulting, helping teams and organizations and leaders measure and quantify happiness as a KPI at work Mm. and learn how to improve it. And the third pillar will be eventually uh, to help nations prioritize gross national happiness alongside GDP as a measure of success. So instead of just going... So we're moving to Denmark. Right, yeah. Instead of just going, we're a successful country because we're growing the economy, well, how happy are our citizens? Mm. Now... For the listeners, probably more relevant that first pillar on personal happiness. Uh, Obviously, if you go to the website, we've got some free tools there to help you start that journey. If you do want to work one-on-one with a coach and come to the college and work with a specialist in happiness and positive psychology, uh, you can go through there. But excitingly, I can announce, oh, this is the first public announcement of this. Big moment. You guys get the exclusive scoop. As of mid-2023, we're launching a self-study happiness gap year program, which is going to make it far more financially accessible for people, time-wise accessible for people, and help us really move towards that vision of growing global happiness. So you basically just get access to a full toolkit and syllabus of evidence-based tools to help you manage your mind and emotions better and live a happier life. I'm joking with people that it's like Netflix, but better for them. Mm -hmm. So keep an eye out for that. Obviously, check out the website, stay tuned with our social media channels, and we'll announce when that's live. 
Awesome. Love that. So yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes for that. Thanks for your time today. What we're going to do, uh, I just want to show Declan this. So we've just released and rebooted our money journal called My Money Journal. And it's a self-paced journal. It's not like a D diary thing. Like I've just opened a section, maximizing your career. Your career is a key way that you can be earning money. And then it's, that's funny here, on a scale of one to 10 glens, how are you loving your job or career? And they can circle, you know, <laughs> how many of my heads, you know, why do you feel this way? How could you make your job even better? What you might need to do to make a move within your job. I mean, there's, you know, it's pretty big, but what I've done in this version of the journal, see in the middle there, it's like a, a chart that oh, I've, I love this. I've drawn and what the premise is each day, uh, some things that you might want to track is your mood, satisfaction, quality of time spent with loved one. Uh, what's that say? Uh, politeness. Politeness, thankfulness, anything that you want to track and you track it from one to 10, 10 being you know, perfect and euphoric and one being the worst. And basically what I want people to do, you can see at the bottom here, each day it goes one to 31. Mm. So the days of the month, every single day, just plot how you felt of the thing that you're tracking and then you can just join the dots. And the premise of this would be to look at, you know, why, and there's a couple of templates there, but also what I want people to do is look for trends. Mm. If you consistently score an eight plus across consecutive days, why is that? Mm. And what's creating the consistent score? And then try and maintain that. Or if something, you know, why have I scored three for the last five days on this thing that I'm tracking? We'll do an autopsy. Why is it so low? So it's just a good, you know, way to see it. And we get deep. And I'm just opening the next page here. I just saw that. I yeah, glanced ahead. Have a read of that. The what common regrets say? of the dying. Yeah. So um, we talk about regrets of the dying. I love this. Is this from the Bronnie Ware study? Do you know? No, I'm not sure. So Probably. an Australian palliative nurse called Bronnie Ware did the longest running study on what people regret on their deathbed. Wow. And it is one of my favorite tools for people having a wake up call in life. Yeah. Um, because of the top five, the most frequently said one was, I wish I allowed myself to be happier. And I've added and learned how to be happier. Mm. Right, And there's other ones in there like, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I spent more time with my loved ones. Um, but yeah, this is fantastic. Again, looping back to our uh, takeaway. I wasn't uh, coming into this planning to be a takeaway, no. but an important one, reflect on your own mortality. Well, I think it just puts what it does. You can actually have that journal. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, if you want to buy the journal, everyone, they're available. I think they're under $50, maybe even a pre-order one, but they're a good resource because getting things out of your head onto 100%. paper. Yeah. Gives you perspective, um, yeah, clarity. So, but that death thing, it does give you perspective, doesn't it? Massively so. Like, it's just wild. But what we're going to do, we're going to end the episode now. Have you still got 10 minutes? Yes. We're going to do a little after party Beautiful. with Declan. Now, for those who are new to this, an after party, we end the episode now. The music will come up and all that stuff. After the after party, or when we get to the after party, I've gone onto Declan's website and I've completed one of the quizzes about my happiness score. It's the happiness scorecard? Yeah, and I'm going to give my results to Declan and he can um, discuss it with me. Beautiful. Thanks for your time today, Declan. We'll end the episode now. We'll see you in the after party if you still want to listen. But um, yeah, thanks for listening today. Thank you. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. 
My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Okay, the after party. And this is very informal. It probably won't even get edited. So it's just... See, I went on your website and I did the questionnaire. Yep, happiness scorecard. Yep. Happiness scorecard. So my happiness score, what do you reckon it is? Oh, mate, I try not to make guesses and bets on people's happiness. Uh, whatever. <laughs> Overall, okay, look, let me... Mm, late 70s. Is it? Let me have a look. 64. 64. Okay, let's have a look. I'm not, I don't know if I'm happy. I'm content. <laughs> I, I pro, yeah, Am I, I happy with my happiness score? It's yeah. a very meta question. <laughs> no. I saw my happiness score and I'm not happy. So with I, it. I actually haven't, I, I was meaning on um, looking at that, but have a quick scrub. Okay. So this is talk what we us can through look at it. why. So for the listeners, this is a tool we developed a few years ago. We currently give away 250 of them for free each month uh, and provide a day. Uh, of food for someone in need for everyone that's completed. So thank you for doing this. Oh, no worries. literally fed someone by doing it. Um, but it'll give you a personalized report that spits out uh, your happiness score, internal versus external contributors to happiness, hedonic versus eudaimonic, so all the stuff we spoke about today and what your best strengths are and the ones you could improve upon are. So when we look at yours, we just spent the whole session talking about the importance of eudaimonic happiness mm. You can probably see on this page. Yeah. So your hedonic's 63, but your eudaimonic's 58. So it's, the eudaimonic's actually dragging down a little bit. Ooh. But 63 versus 58, that's basically 5%, level. Yeah, 5%. It's and your internal, 50, external are very similar as well. Yeah. But what's more interesting, and this is what I like people to look at is the last couple of pages Ooh. in their report. Your Let's look at what you're doing well. Am first. I just poaching a free session out of you? <laughs> <laughs> so your strengths at the moment, the things that Ooh. are boosting your happiness. Yes is a sense of achievement in life. So setting goals that matter to you, intentionally pursuing them and eventually achieving them. Mm. Um, career satisfaction. So doing something that you enjoy for work that you find meaningful and purposeful. Well, I, I, I don't really work. That's the thing. Right. I, I, I wake up and I do podcasts. Fun. and yeah. yeah like I, I tell people, and it's true, I retired from the workforce when I turned 25 and that's when I started my own business because yep. I'm just doing it because I like it and I've got control. Yeah, I plan on never retiring. I love what we yeah. do, right? And then your third one is growth mindset. So an ability to find ways to grow and develop and adapt to challenges and see failures as learnings and feedback, not mm-hmm. as endpoints. So those things are doing really well for you. And then your three that are probably going to help the most <laughs> if we grow them is relationship with ourselves. 
So this would be stuff like... Yeah, I don't enjoy myself. Okay, cool, yeah. right? So this is our self-compassion, our self-worth. you imagine living with this? <laughs> well, that's funny you mentioned that. I say to people all the time, like, whether you like it or not, you're stuck with yourself for life. Yeah, so you might as well make it a good relationship. Gosh. And then our next one is sense of flow. So this is how often we completely lose ourselves in the moment. Mm. So we're fully immersed, we're focused. I joke with people, if you want to understand flow, go listen to Lose Yourself by Eminem. Mm. It is a whole song about flow as an experience. And then the third one's romantic relationships. So forming a really uh, healthy <laughs> relationship uh, does make a difference to happiness. We know that. Yeah. Um, or healing from past relationships if yeah. you are single. Yeah. So there's your three focus areas, mate. If I was to say to you, do three things to focus on for the next 12 months to boost your score, it's those three. Oh, I'll give you up. Can I have a look at that? <laughs> yes, sir. Do you, okay, so a question. Yeah. So I've got a good sense of achievement. I've mm-hmm. got a good career satisfaction score and a good growth mindset. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Um, yeah, relationships. So I probably, I knew that I didn't heaps like myself. I, I don't like my body. I think, you know, I'm overweight and the BMI says that, all that stuff. Um, the sense of flow, that's an interesting, like romantic relationship. I knew that was in the freaking gutter. And, you know, one of the things that maybe affected that was the person I talked about forgiveness. Mm, Um, gotcha. Okay. And if you know me and you know, my circle of friends, it's not the person that you think it is or anything (laughs) like that. So don't even worry about trying to guess. Um, but this sense of flow, Mm. interestingly enough, I've had a few people loosely tell me and doctors loosely tell me in a social setting that I've got undiagnosed ADHD. Mm-hmm. In your research or you know, just talking with colleagues, does an ADHD thing affect that sense of flow? Yeah, look, it can. It's not an area I'm super well versed sure. in. It's not my speciality, yep. but I do know that it can have an impact on it almost to the end of it pushes people to the extremes from my understanding. Mm. So, Like I'm not flowing one thing, I'm doing 20 of the one things at once. Yeah, so we yeah. tend to see almost like, and again, this is an area I haven't done a ton of research in, but mm. from what I have seen, uh, it can push people to the end of like massive multitasking, struggling into flow, or to the other end of having one or two topics that they can go deep flow into, like mm. completely lose themselves in for hours on end. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would be one to be mindful of. Yeah, well, there you go. If you want a happiness scorecard like Glennie J over here, you can go to the website that's in the show notes. Yep. And there's a heap of questions there. No, it's good. I, I think about what, seven minutes to do? Yeah, well, it wasn't that. And I'll send you yeah. a personalized report. Yeah, we, as I say, we do 250 for free each month. Yeah. Uh, and then they shut down. Um, and I'd recommend getting on it quick because we're looking at doing a, a change to the model of it late 2023. So if you're right. hearing this soon, dive in and get it now. Yeah, okay. So yeah, I've got to focus on how would you help me? <laughs> Just getting a session here. I mean, okay, so relationship to self. Yes. What would you say are some low-hanging fruit that I could do to have a better relationship to self? I'll give you the first step yeah. because a lot of people try to jump to the second, yeah. myself included. Yeah. When I first started working on this, I said to my coach at the time, my mentor, you know, I said, hey, I want to have better self-confidence, self-worth, self-care, self-compassion, self-esteem. He goes, cool, what do those all start with? I'm like, self? Damn it. <laughs> and he goes, okay, so who's Declan? Who's yourself? And I'm like, uh, I was 19 at the time, mm. right? I'm like, I have no idea. And he goes, mate, how are you going to have self-worth with someone you don't even know? Mm. How are you going to be compassionate towards someone you don't have a relationship with? So the first step to any of these, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-care, whatever it may be, is figure out who you are, know your values, know what you believe in, define 
Like know your strengths, mm. figure out what makes you, you. And look, that's a long-term journey. It's not a quick win, but start by just doing more introspection. Maybe I've, in all honesty, I'm going to do the My Money Journal myself. Perfect. Yeah. Because that head knowledge of, you know, I helped curate a lot of the questions in there. Mm. Maybe I need to do that. Mate, we might get you gratitude journaling yet. Might Giddy be the up, first baby. time in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> what am I grateful for? I don't have diabetes yet. <laughs> anyway, enough. We are good. Thanks for... Um, chatting about my you're weaknesses. welcome <laughs> well growth opportunities growth and opportunity. what you're doing well oh, that's interesting it's a it's a good spin it's not you suck at relationships <laughs> self-flow and romantic relationships it's just, it's, hey, if you, just the opportunity if you work on this it will make the biggest impact to your happiness mm. do you think you can actually have a well-balanced life uh overall yes in mm. the big picture of life i think in each chapter of life you need to do conscious sacrifice yeah, because there's always... There's always a plate that's going to be th- wobbling. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You can't spin all of them perfectly all the time. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, again, if you define what happiness looks like in this chapter, you might go, hey, I'm okay with consciously sacrificing right now mm. the amount of time and effort I put into a certain area of my life to pursue a different part. Mm. As long as that sacrifice is intentional and conscious and doesn't go on forever, like we've all seen people who go, oh, I'll stop looking after my health to just focus on my career for a bit. 40 years later, their health is in a you know absolute shambles. Mm. As long as it's short-term and intentional, you're fine. Have you thought of doing a book yourself? Yeah, I've got one. Oh, you do? What is it? Uh, So it was one that we published a few years ago on the power of perception and perspective. Depending on how you read the title, it's either Opportunity is Nowhere or Opportunity is Now Here. So we self-published it. It was featured at the Frankfurt International Book Fair. Oh, really? Yeah. I I should introduce you to my publisher and get it republished. Well, the plan is uh, we're currently looking at my master's thesis on how to be happy at work. We're looking at turning into... A book yeah. for a publisher, as well as redoing the first one with updated research, but calling it How to Be Happy. Like yeah. literally, this is the recipe. But I mean, you should, um, well, it's up to you. You can do what you want. But I reckon a publisher is good because there's like- there's, I'd much prefer to yeah. a publisher. Like, there's no I'm money in never books. self-publishing again. Like, I have no yeah. interest like, in it. I think I get you like talk $2 about things, per copy of my book. Like, you want to talk just, about things that tanked my happiness? Self-publishing a book. Yeah. <laughs> I never again. Well, if you want an intro- I'd love that. Yeah, I can give you a few people's details. Yeah, thank you. Um, but uh, look, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us on the after party. You're very welcome. What um, an after party it was. All right, bye.